Hi, good morning. Welcome everybody that's here at our main campus, and again, welcome to you guys that are joining us online. So the Revelation uh, series that we're in, so give you a little bit of a, a background to what we're talking about and what we're doing. So if you weren't here last week, uh, we'll give you some sort of a foundation. So anytime you talk about Revelation, a lot of people are like, I don't know, I've, I don't, I've kind of tried to read it, and if I read it, it was a little bit confusing, a little bit weird, you know, so I stop reading it, or I'm completely infatuated with it because I want to know when Jesus is coming back, and I want to predict the last day. You know, there tends to be this somewhere in between, like we don't really take time to study it and look through it and try to understand what it is that we can learn from it. So the Revelation series is we're going to start with what we did last week, which was build a foundation, right? So why should you want to read the book of Revelation? So why is it important? Why should it, as a part of your Christian journey, be an important book or letter that you understand and read? And then we're going to go into the seven letters that he wrote to the churches. After we get to the end of the seven letters, we're going to kind of see where we're at, you know, and decide where we want to go from there, if we want to come back to it or study more of it. But let's start with the foundation. So all of the apostles that Jesus picked in the beginning um, had all been martyred except for John. And John was, they tried to kill him. You know, they put him in boiling water, boiling oil. Nobody really knows which one it really was. But either way, they tried to kill him and couldn't. And so because they couldn't kill him, they decided to exile him to the island of Patmos. So on the island of Patmos where he goes away, he's sitting there to live out his last days. But Jesus decides it would be good for uh, us to visit him and give him some insight, right, to whatever the future is going to look like. So what is it that we as Christian people are going to be looking at in the future? What should be, we be prepared for? And so when the angels came, gave him a vision for the book of Revelation, he gave him this vision, said, write it down, and wanted each one of us to read it. And so we read it for a couple different reasons. One is a warning. So whether you want to hear this or not, you know, or take it this way or not, Revelation is for sure a warning. Like it's saying, listen, there's, and after even last week, this was funny. It's like, wow, that was like right to the point. And I'm like, well, if you read the book of Revelation, it's right to the point, right? So it's essentially in the book of Revelations, it's a, it's a warning that would say, whatever it says, you need to actually take it to heart and do something about it, right? So it's not like just read it and look at it as something that's a suggestion, but look at it as like, if you, don't do so, if you don't do this, let me give you a picture of the future, right? So that's what he's saying. So he's saying, if you ever wondered what would happen if you didn't listen, here's what happens to those who don't listen. Or here's who happen, what happens to those people who have to suffer through some of these things. So it's a warning. But the other thing is it's a blessing, right? Because he says, in the beginning, I'm going to bless every single person who reads it. Right, So we encouraged everybody that's not reading their Bible, you don't have an excuse anymore because he said if you read it, even though you don't understand it, at some point you will, so just keep reading. Right, Because it's a common denominator, with especially men. A lot of men that you talk to have tried to read the Bible, it doesn't make any sense, so I just gave up and let somebody else tell me what it says. Right, So there is no blessing in somebody else telling you all the time what the Bible says. Right, So you need to read it. And, and you also need to listen to it, which means is that you're reading it with this idea that you want to understand it, right? So there's a heart in saying, I'm reading it not just so I can check it off the list. And if somebody came up and said, are you reading your Bible? You could say, yeah, I read my Bible every day, you know, but reading with an expectation, right? That's what the listening part is. So I'm reading it because I'm expecting to hear something from God. So I want to listen to it. And then the other part of it is if you read it and you listen to it, then he also says, don't just read and listen, but do something about it, which is a huge challenge, right? I mean, how many times you read the Bible and you feel convicted to do something and you never do it? Yeah, how many? A few of us? Yeah, me and Scott, right? Yeah. So, I mean, a few times we read the Bible, you look at it, you feel convicted, and you're like, I need to go do something about it. And then all of a sudden you just go back to whatever you're doing, right? So he says, I'm going to bless you, or you could look at it this way. I'm going to be on your side, right? That's the part we need to see about blessing. Blessing doesn't mean your whole life's going to go right. It's just going to be, I'm going to be on your side, whether life is going right or wrong. Right? So I think all of us would choose to say, I'd rather have him on our side. And so he says, the blessing is going to be read it, read it with an expectation so you're going to listen. And then once you hear it, do something about it. And if you do that, God says, I'm going to be on your side. And that was the emphasis of last week. 
I've said, you know, the thing that's been on my heart is this, like, I think God's really doing some really cool things, you know, whether it's through Life Church or the people that I'm involved with, you know, I feel like God's really showing up, right, and doing some things that are completely unexplainable, right, like working in lives of people that you would have never thought, fixing broken things that you could never thought would be fixed, you know, healing things we thought could never be healed, and so inside of that, the thing that I keep coming back to is, is that, you know, we can read the Bible and we can come to church and we can go to small groups and we can do these things, but nothing is going to replace the presence of God and what he can do, right? Because the presence of God in this church and the presence of God in your life and the presence of God in your small group is what heals things that you thought you could never heal. It's what fixes things that you thought were broken that could never be put back together, you know, it's the God that takes lives that you would have been praying for for years, and in a moment, he can change them, right? That's what God's presence does. And so when we started this series, I said, you know, the thing that's going to be the most important to me is that we continue to pray that the presence of God never leaves this church, right? And, and the way that you get there is through obedience. And sometimes obedience costs us a lot. And so we would want to say together, you know, when we read these, you know, books or these letters to the, to the seven churches, one of the things that we want to make sure that we understand from the beginning is, is that in each one of these books or each one of these letters, he talks pretty directly to the people. But essentially, he's just saying, if you're obedient, not perfect, there's a difference, right? Obedience means you're going to hear and do. It doesn't mean you're always going to succeed or do it right. Like, big difference. Like, sometimes I think people fear obedience because they're like, well, I don't know if I could do it, and I don't know how it's going to turn out, and it doesn't even matter, right? It's more about whether you're willing to do it, whether you're willing to take the risk to move into those places. And he says, if you do that, I'm going to show up in your marriage. I'm going to show up in your relationships. I'm going to show up in your life. I'm going to show up in your kids. I'm going to do what only obedience unlocks, right, which is the presence of God. And that's what we're saying for Life Church. So individually we want that, but for Life Church we want that, right? Like we want to hear what he says and do what he says. And sometimes that costs us a lot. Sometimes that's way more difficult than just doing, right? Sometimes that makes us way uncomfortable, right? People have said before one of the reasons they quit coming to life is every time they came they just felt terrible after they, you know, they would come to church and they would leave and they're like, oh, my gosh, I feel terrible. Can't you make us feel good? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm terrible at that. Like, I'm just reading what it says. I don't know how you feel, you know, or how you walk away from it. But that's not really my responsibility. Because sometimes when the scripture speaks to your heart, you're going to be uncomfortable. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to be difficult. And you're going to look at it. And you're not going to feel so good about yourself. Well, that's okay. Right? Join the club. We're all reading it for what it says. It hurts sometimes because we're not listening. And we're not doing, and we're not obedient. So I'm hoping when we go through this, that's something that we can continue to open up. Let's open up our hearts to God doing some amazing things. So turn to Revelation 2, so that's where we're going to be today. It's the start of the seven letters that we're going to be looking at. So in this, just a, a real quick overview, like the seven letters were written to seven actual churches. Okay, so these letters were written to seven, these were seven churches that existed, and there was a purpose for writing the letters, right? So in writing these letters, he wanted to speak to each one of these churches individually, right? And not only because we understand the book of Revelations and we understand the Bible itself, because it's living word, it wasn't just so that we could read a letter to another church and be like, wow, that church sucks, you know? Or, wow, those people are terrible, right? Which sometimes we get this disconnectedness. You know, when you read scripture and you look at it and be like, what's wrong with those people? Like, who could ever be like that, right? Well, the whole thing that I think is, is important for us, so when we're reading them, this is what I'm going to challenge you with. So read it as if, yes, it is a letter to another church, but it's also written to you, right? So when, we, when you read this letter, you have to ask yourself some of the same questions, right? So if this letter was written personally to me, what would he say, right? Or if this letter was written personally, you could just take out the church of Ephesus and say, to Life Church, this is what I have to say to you, right? 
If you do that, then you're going to tend to have more of an experience or an understanding what he's trying to do with us. Because the writing of these letters aren't just supposed to be historical, right? Like, oh, we read it and we look at it and man, they made mistakes. I hope we don't make the same mistake. The big thing is, how does it speak to you personally? Right? So what is it personally that he wants to say to you through this letter? And what does he want you to get right? And then also, what is he saying to us corporately as a church? And you know why that's important? Because listen, I hope you want to be a part of a church that God wants to be a part of. So look around and see those things corporately. Are they happening? And here's the other question. Are you a part of making them happen? Or are you sitting on the sideline? Right, like that's the whole idea behind all of this in the way that we read it. Like you're reading it corporately, like this is what we want from the church. But the big question is, are you a part of a church that cares about these same things? Right, are you a part of a church that wants to see some of these same things? And are you a part of making it happen? Right, that's how we want to look at it. So Church of Ephesus, so to give you an idea, Paul planted this church, you know, and, and it's in Ephesus, obviously, which was a port center, a lot of sin, you know, a lot of people coming in and out, a lot of different cultures, kind of a metropolitan area, a little bit like New York City, if you've ever been there, you know, it's a little bit about New York City, a lot of blends of different types of people. And so when they went in there and planted the church, it was a big challenge, right, to bring Jesus to a completely I mean, I say completely, I mean, it was Greek and Jewish, but there was a lot of uh, people who could care less about God, right? So they came in there and they planted the church. And in this, you're going to see this, and I'll remind you of it when we read it. So they planted the church, and Paul visited Ephesus numerous different times, because that's what he would do. He'd plant a church, he'd plant a church, he'd plant a church, and plant a church. And then he'd go all the way back around on a second missionary journey and he'd revisit some of these churches. That's why you see, you know, different letters sometimes. You know, first and second Corinthians is because he was there once and then something was happening later. And so he needed to write something again to the same church. So we'd go around and visit him. So when we're reading this, you're going to see like an emphasis where we see this is what they were like in the beginning. And then 40 years went by and now this is what they're like. Right, so you're going to see that. Like, here's how you guys were in the beginning when Paul first planted the church. Now this is what you're like 40 years later. What can we learn from it? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read all the way through it, and then we're going to go back and break it down. So this is Revelations 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Now remember, when we're reading this and we're listening to it, Read it and listen to it individually. Like, what is it saying to me? Is this a part of, of who I am? And then think about it corporately at the same time. So here's what it says, Revelations 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven, uh, seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far that you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have uh, this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And whoever has, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in paradise, in the paradise of God. So here's the picture of every one of the letters and maybe the picture to you individually that he wants to say. Here's big picture. Here's what you're doing right or not doing, right? So here's all these things that he thought that the church was doing right. Here's the things that he thought the church was doing wrong. Now, this is the kicker, right? So here's what you're doing right. Here's what you're doing wrong. It's not just an evaluation. It's a mandate, right? Because this is what he says. Either fix it or I'm leaving. Right? That's what he said at the end. Repent or I'm going to remove my lampstand. Right? And it even says at the end, to the person or to the people or to the church who is victorious, right? To the people who are going to fight for this peace that he talks about, they will experience eternity, right? That's what it says at the end. So he paints this picture of like, look at what you were doing right, look at what you're doing wrong, 
But at the end of the day, you better fix it and stop talking about it. Right? Because we tend to live in a culture where we say a lot and do a little. Right? We tend to listen to messages that convict us, but we never change. Right? I mean, it just happens. I'm not, this isn't a you know, condemnation to you. It's just a reality. We tend to listen to lots of things that convict us. We tend to have lots of people challenge us. Right? But at the end of the day, sometimes we do it, sometimes we don't. So he just says, I'm just going to give you a little precursor. If you don't repent and you don't change, church, and I'm just going to say this to you individually, or to you, if you don't repent and you don't change, my presence is not going to be there. Now, we just said the thing that's going to fix your marriage, fix your kids, you know, all of those things that were broken that we try to fix on our own and we can't get it fixed. We just said the only thing that can fix it is the presence of God, right? So how important is it that the presence of God is in all of those things? Vitally important, right? So why wouldn't we look at this and say, listen, and this is what I'm going to challenge you with. Because he says this at the end. If you have ears, listen, right? And here's what listening means. Do something about it, right? If you hear this today, don't walk away. So in that, there's ways that you can do that. So when we read through this and we break it down, there's ways that you can do it. So I'm just going to encourage you in some of those ways. So one of them is, I'm going to tell you, um, and I'm going to keep encouraging you through this, whether it's you're reading it on your phone, whether you actually have a Bible, whether you're taking notes. Part of listening is being able to walk away from this, write down, tell somebody, this is what God said to me, this is what's going on, and I need to do something about it. Right? Because we already know the reality. You remember the reality? You're going to listen to the message, and how soon does it take you to forget it? It's not long, is it? Right? Like Monday afternoon, Tuesday, depends on where you're at. And again, I'm not, saying you have to re- I'm not saying that you have to remember the entire message of what you hear on Sunday morning. But here's what I will encourage you with. If God is in this place, he wants to speak to you today. Right? Please say yes, right? Because, I mean, he wants to say something to you. So I don't really care if you remember what I say. I care if you remember what he said to you. So in this message, this is what God convicted me of. In this message, in this word, this is what God spoke to me on. And I can write it down or I can put it there. You don't have to remember the main point or, you know, even, you know, what the stories were. But but what is it that he's going to say to you? So I'm going to challenge you inside of this. What is he saying to you? And then what do we need to be able to do from that? Because we already know the warning. Okay, so take it for whatever it's worth. If you hear it or you read it and you do nothing about it, you stand the chance of the presence of God leaving your home, your church, your marriage, your relationships. Are we all tracking? Right? Like that's just the, that's the gamble. Like if you want to roll the dice and say, well, you know, I'm kind of up for whatever and I'll just keep playing it because at some point I'm actually going to care about what he says to me. So I'll just keep rolling the dice so it actually comes to that point. <clears throat> I probably wouldn't roll the dice. I probably wouldn't take my time. I think a lot of you have been around here long enough to know I don't know how much time you got anyway. Right? So I don't think I would be like, oh, maybe at some point when I get around to it. I would suggest you take it seriously. So let's now go break it down. So let's go back. If you have your Bible or on your phone, let's go back and break it down and see what he says. So back to verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So remember, this is Jesus among his church, and this is what he has to say about his church. He says this, I know your good deeds. So this would be back to, he would say, what, so what are the good deeds? And the only reason we need to identify some of these things is because you're looking at it saying, if this letter was written and it would say, and Nelson, I know your good deeds, right? Or would it be like, hey, Nelson, or your lack of good deeds, 
right? Because that's what you're looking at, right? Because this is what the letter's trying to say. The letter's trying to say to the church and to you individually, I know your good deeds. What would have been the good deeds, right? Think about what Paul would have went into Ephesus saying, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, these are the things you're going to do, like the deeds. What would they be? Take care of the poor, take care of the hungry, right? Because we know that because they would, they would do that. They would assign people if the less fortunate, so the orphan, the widow, right? The people that can't take care of themselves. So it would have been, part of the good deeds would see, be seeing somebody in need and doing something about it. The other good deeds that we know is, is that the gospel changed the lives of people. So we should also go spread the gospel, right? So we know good deeds would have been preaching it, right? Saying it, going out and teaching it, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, taking care of people who were sick. Because remember, if you would have given your life to Jesus Christ, then you probably would have lost your business, right? Because you're living inside of a city that if you would have been one of those people, probably nobody's going to come and talk to you anymore. So there would have been people that would have been financially strained. So it would have been Christian people saying, you know what, as a church, here you go. As a church, here you go. Or individually, individual, like I know this family and I know this family struggling, here you go. Right? I'm going to take care of them. Or kids, because of, this is what we know in Ephesus happened a lot. A lot of families came to know Jesus and their parents were killed. So you had orphan kids, people, and it would have been, the church would have been, this is no big deal. We're taking them in. Right? We're going to, we're going to take these kids in and we're going to see that these kids, and or we know this from some of the stories in Ephesus that kids came to know Christ and their family didn't. And so then they were kicked out of their home. Not kids were taken, kicked out of their home because they believed and their parents didn't. And the church would have said, that's okay, because we're going to take care of you. So good deeds, right? And so when we look at that, remember, this is what you're saying. So now think about yourself. So if he was writing to the letter to you and he would say, Mitchell, I know your good deeds and they are, would they, that list be long or short? Because that's what it's actually trying to say to you, right? Because we're going to get to it at the end and he say, I hold this against you. But part of what he's holding against is saying, you know what, i got to think through this. Am I doing this? When I see a need, do I meet it? Am I preaching the gospel to people? Am I going out and doing, right? Would he know my good deeds and would he know yours? Or would he be writing saying, ain't much to say? I mean, let's just be honest, right? Because that's what this is supposed to be. Is it's supposed to be an unveiling when he says this, and he says it to a church, or he says it to people. What is he actually saying? But he said, I know your good deeds. He also says, I, you know, I know your good deeds and your hard work and your perseverance, right? So your hard work and your perseverance. So here's what he would have been talking about. So this hard work inside of the church. So think of it from a corporate standpoint. When every church gets started, whether it's the church of Ephesus or Life Church, everybody knows that it takes a lot of work to get it done, right? So it would have said, in the beginning, think about this. So in the beginning, it's really difficult when you start a church. Like very few people are here from the beginning when we started the church. And part of the reason you know why? Because they quit. Because <laughs> it was too hard. Right? I mean, that's just the reality of starting a church. The reality of starting a church is you know how hard it is to walk into a building and only have a few people and have no money? Right? How many people are sticking that out when they could go to a church that's already done? You know, who, you could go and your children's ministry's already done and the youth ministry's already done and they already have a worship band and they already have plenty of money and they already have. Who wants to come to something that you have to start from scratch? I'll just tell you, very few. Well, they like to come, but they don't want to stay because it's hard, right? So very few people are in there. So here's what he's saying. Some of you, I love your perseverance because you saw the work of the church and you're involved in making sure that it gets done. You're not standing back on the sidelines being a consumer, but you're persevering knowing that it takes something to run a church, Right? And in the church of Ephesus, it was something. And in Life Church, it's something. And so he's saying to each one of this, are you a part of the team? Right? Are you persevering? Are you pushing through? Or are you? Because, you know, in the beginning, and this would, would have happened in the church of Ephesus, and we'll see this later on. You know, in the beginning, you don't have any choice because there's not enough people. But you know what happens when church grows? There's plenty of other people to do the no, yes, yes, 
It's just what happens. Churches grow. You look around. You know, in the beginning, back to the good deeds part, if you were coming here and there's 15 people and there's 250 chairs set up, you're feeling weird. <laughs> Do you know what you're doing? Inviting somebody because this is weird. Right? Now look around. They have very many empty seats anymore, right? What do I need to do? Right? The church is full, you know? You know what I mean? You just see what I'm saying, right? Like, this is what happens in the natural nature of people as they go down these roads. And he's saying, but for you guys, like, you stuck it out and you persevered and you were doing and you fought through and you were involved to make it work even when it cost you something. So he says, I know your good deeds are perseverance. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. So wicked people would have been, he was talking to the church. Wicked people were inside of the church. This wasn't like looking out at the people who were, you know, worshiping Athena or Diana at the time. It was the wicked people inside of the church. Because you remember when Jesus talked about wicked people? Who did he call wicked? Pharisees. That's who he called wicked. He said the Pharisees, the religious people, the people that look down on other people, the people that are judgmental of other people, the people that are religious, but they're like whitewashed tombs. There's nothing changing. She's like, nobody in the church of Ephesus in the beginning is putting up with those suckers. They're like, if you want to be religious, there's the door. Like, it ain't working, right? And I'll just have to say it's the one thing I love about Life Church. Right, one of the things I love about life churches is that they don't just put up with people being religious, like either be a Christian and get on board or go find. There's plenty of churches that are religious. Jump on those things, right? Like it ain't working here, and that's not the way it is. So he says they didn't tolerate wicked people. Then he also said that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. Now listen, here's what he would have said. There were people in the church of Ephesus that knew enough about their Bible that when a preacher was preaching it wrong, they could say, you're wrong. You know what the epidemic in the church today is? Nobody knows even when the preacher says something that's wrong and you drink the Kool-Aid. I'm just telling you. How many people are drinking the Kool-Aid? And they're like, oh, I go to this church and this guy, and I'm like, what are you talking about? He's a lunatic. Like Jim Jones stuff, right? Like just drink the Kool-Aid and do whatever. Like, and you know the problem is I'm like, how did you ever come up with that? And they're like, but he said it. And I'm like, but that's not what scripture says. You know, and this is no offense to back when I was, you know, in Adams County and growing up and, you know, around this. You know, we'd have people that would go to the Catholic church, right? And then they would have these beliefs. And I would say, where do you get those beliefs? Well, this is what the priest tells us and talks about. I'm like, where do you find it in your Bible? Well, like, we don't read the Bible. We just listen to what he says. And this is an epidemic. Whether you want to believe this or not, people sometimes are taught, follow the teaching of the elevated person on stage. Call them whatever you want. You don't have to read your Bible. And listen, people are being led down the path of hell by preachers who are preaching false testimony and you don't know any different because you're not reading your Bible. And you would not attest it if, you, if it came right in front of you. That's a shame, right? You should never trust me. I'd never trust me. <laughs> Look at me, would you trust me? No, I know, I'm with you. I wouldn't trust me either. Like, you should go back to Scripture, and you should study it for yourself. If there's false teaching, you should call it out. But you know how many people aren't even reading their Bible, and preachers could lead them down a path of hell, and they're like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's really happening. I'm just telling you. But in the church of Ephesus, they were like, this ain't happening. We're not going to let these things happen to us. Then he also says, you've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. So they were out preaching the gospel, and they knew this. If they stood by Christian faith, they were going to be persecuted. So the church withstood persecution, not just for persecution's sake. They withstood persecution because they were out. People knew they were Christians, and there was a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. We live in the world today where I'm not sure you could tell the difference. And you know why people aren't enduring hardships anymore? Because there is no difference between someone who is Christian and what they stand for and somebody who is not. I mean, that's not a, again, I'm not saying it to you, but maybe, right? I mean, how many, 
hardships have we endured for the name of Jesus? Right? Like, think about this. Because you stood for something, because believe me, I'm telling you right now, if you stood for something and said anything about it, tell me the world's not going to be like, what are you saying? You're trying to cause controversy and division. I mean, don't be a people of division. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Jesus said when he comes back, it will be divided. Right? It will be divided. There are two sides, and you need to pick which one you're on. Because if you're in the middle, walking the fence, someday you're going to fall and it hurts. Pick a side. Because when you do, believe me, when you pick a side and you air what you believe, because people are always worried about this. People tell me this all the time. Aren't you worried about what you say people are going to be mad? I'm like, no. You know what I'm worried about? Standing in front of Jesus someday and him looking at me saying, why didn't you say it? You big chicken. Like, who are you afraid of? Right? Like, who are you afraid of? Like, if we, in his name, say certain things, but he was saying to the church of Ephesus, wow, good job, because you guys are enduring it for my name. You don't have any problems going out into the city and living out your faith. And when you live out your faith, you're having to endure hardships. You're losing your job because of what you stand for. It's costing you something in your family because you made a decision, right? Like it's, you have to endure it because you did something about it. Then he goes on. So all this stuff, good in the beginning, right? Then 40 years go by and he gets to this place and he says this to him. He says, yet I hold this against you. What did he hold against him? That you have forsaken, uh, that you have forsaken the love you had at first. What does it mean to forsake your first love? So I'm going to give this in the best illustration that I can because it's one that's very close to me. So every couple that I do marriage counseling with and every couple that I get to marry, I say the same thing at the end of every one of them. At the end of this, this is what I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that every single day that you are together, that your love for one another will grow more and more and more and more till the day that Jesus takes you home away from that, that you will love each other so much more than you did on this day that you're married. And a lot of couples are like, I don't know, can it be possible? Can you really love that person that you're infatuated with in the beginning? You know when you're first married? Come on, right? Like when you're first married, aren't you infatuated with them? You know, and I'm saying like, and every day I expect you to just love them more. In fact, when Sherry and I used to walk around on the beaches and you see the old people holding hands, I'm like, I want to be that couple. And you know that they're in the restaurants and they're sitting next to each other and they're actually talking. Do you know what I mean? Like you ever get in a restaurant and the people are sitting across from each other and they're just like, I'm like, this is sad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this isn't the way it's supposed to go. Like, but you have those, like you see these couples and, you know, they're sitting next to each other and they'll lean over and they'll kiss him. And I'm like, that, that's what I want. For the rest of my life, I want that to never fade. I don't want to stop holding hands. I don't want to stop kissing. I don't want to stop sitting on the same couch. You know what I mean? You get inside of your house and you both have your same places and you never really talk to each other, but you sit in there and look forward the rest of the night and you say, wow, we're together. Isn't this good? Right? Do you have your own chair? Right? Isn't that the way it works? Come on, dude. Like, this. huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But, you know, when you're dating, you ain't sitting on separate couches. Right? And looking at each other being like, hey. You know, when you're, when you're first dating, you are pursuing. When you're first dating, you're like, I can't get enough of this. Right? And you're just like, I want to call him, you know. In fact, I went back and read Sherry's journals when, after she died. And then we started dating when I was 15. And we spent like every single day together. Right? So she would write it in her journal. My kids were reading it. And they're like, oh, my gosh, seriously. <laughs> you know, and even till the day, you know, I mean, we would kiss each other. Like, we do all of this in front of our kids. And they'll be like, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, I love her more than I did the day that I married her and the first time I started dating her. Like, that's the idea. Like, we wanted to show our kids that's the way it is. Because you don't want the pursuing to stop, right? Because when you're first dating, you're like, I got to call him. I got to talk to him. Man, I miss him. I haven't seen you. You know, so it's been like 10 minutes. I haven't heard your voice. I got to hear your voice again. Come on. Any of you guys had these experiences? 
you did, you, I mean, come on, you had them, like, we got a date, I just got to see you, it's been so long, and you're buying them gifts, and you're telling them how much you love them, and then you get married. <laughs> come on, now, is this not how it goes? And then all of a sudden, here's the thing. So the focus of your devotion at when you were dating was the person that you love. True? Right? And then you get married and your focus starts to shift. And the focus of your devotion now starts to be your job. And the focus of your devotion all of a sudden, now hear me out, all of a sudden it's your children. Right? Like you start, you know, my kids and they're so important and we're looking at it. And then it's like you could just start adding it up. You know what I mean? Like you just start putting things in places and then pretty, pretty soon, if, if you were to look at your life, your devotion is no longer to your first love. Am I speaking to anybody? Come on. We've all been through this. If you've been married long enough, you can shake your head. Your spouse isn't going to kill you. We've been there. Every, every married couple has went through these challenges, right? Where your devotion starts to shift and all of a sudden the love that you had at first is gone and you have no idea how you got there. You know how you got there? On this slow fade of a shift of devotion in a relationship with the person that you loved that you thought you could never not be infatuated with. And it doesn't happen in one day happens in one year and two years and three years and four years and five years and then pretty, sec- pretty soon you're looking across the person that you love and you're like, I don't even know who you are. I don't know who you are. Now, this is exactly what he's saying about Jesus. He's saying, you know, in the beginning you were so excited and he saved your life and cleansed you of all this sin and great things were happening in the church and you're saying, you need to come and see and you need to be a part of. And in the beginning, like when the worship team comes up, you're raising your hands and you're all excited and you're going down this road because there's nothing more important to you than Jesus because he fixed something that you've been trying to fix for years and I got to come and worship the person who fixed something. And then a year goes by and you're like, church... Jesus, I mean, five years go by, and then all of a sudden, you're not reading your Bible anymore. You're not coming to church. You're not praying. You're not even thinking about it unless somebody reminds you, like, you probably ought to come to church on Sunday. Is this true? Right? Is this the way that it works? This is what he says. It's a, it's a thing that happens inside of relationships where you start this slow fade. Because in the beginning, when Jesus Christ saved your life, you are infatuated for what he did for you. And it's all you think about, right? And you know what he said I have against this church? Your devotion has now changed to other things. You're now devoted to, and now you're devoted to, and now you're devoted to, and I am not the singular thing that you're devoted the most to, right? You have lost your first love. Now, I'll say the same thing that I say about marriage relationships, and I'll say the same thing as what we're saying in in this relationship with Jesus Christ. You better fix it or you're going to lose your relationship. If you're in a marriage right now and you're not pursuing your wife or your husband and loving in ways like you did in the beginning, and if your love isn't growing the way that it was, at some point they ain't putting up with it anymore. I just don't know how long that's going to be for you because some people put up with it longer than others. And when I say that, I'm not even saying you're going to get a divorce. I'm just saying you might die not loving the person that you're next to. If you don't believe it happens, it happens. I'm just going to tell you it happens. I've been a part of watching those things happen. If you think for some reason you can walk out of here and not say, i got to do something about this because my first love for the one that I was infatuated with isn't this way anymore, and I'm just going to hope that someday it gets there, guess what? It'll never get there. If you don't do something about it, and I'll say the same thing with your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you think that you can just attend a church, and you think you can just have somebody else tell you what it says, if you just think somebody else can do all the things for you, and you don't need to fight for this relationship, at some point it'll be gone. I'm just telling you. And you might exist inside of the church for all of your life, but you might stand in front of Jesus someday, and he look at you and say, I don't know who you are.
You see what I'm saying, right? Like it's the same concept. You can exist inside of a marriage and you can exist inside of a church, but it doesn't mean you have a relationship. You can exist inside of the same home. You can exist inside of the same place, but it doesn't mean that this is your first love. I used to tell my kids this all the time. Like, I love you guys, but I will never love you more than I love my love Sherry. Never, never, ever, ever. She, above anything else, is my soul devotion, and I'm gonna prove it to you by the way that I spend my time and the way that I spend my money and the things that I do. Because that's what he's saying, right? Like, you have to prove your devotion. You have to show that this is a relationship. You have to do these things. Well, it's the same thing inside of the church, right? Like, you got to come back to this place where just don't exist inside of here. You have to want this relationship and do something about it, right? Or else he just warns us it'll be gone at some point. Now, he finishes up with this. How do you fix it then, right? So how do we fix this? Here's what he says, verse 5. Consider how far that you've fallen. Do this in your marriage. Do this in relationships. Whatever you need to do, do it in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Take an inventory of where you are today. How, be honest, how is your relationship right now? And I'm saying, like, you know, while we're doing it with Jesus, you actually might want to do it with your wife or your girlfriend or your kid. You know what I mean? Like, you might want to think about doing it. Take an inventory. Where are you? When it comes to, is Jesus Christ your first love and are you devoted or are you, is your focus diverted onto other things and then every once in a while on Sunday we bring it back and say, hey, remember Jesus, right? Or are you devoted to him in those ways? He says, so consider how far that you've fallen. Take an inventory. Then he says this, repent and do the things that you did at first. What's the difference between repentance and forgiveness? Okay, this is really, really important, and I know I'm running out of time, but bear with me, okay? Too many times we think that asking for forgiveness fixes things. Asking for forgiveness doesn't fix anything. Scripture's very clear. What fixes things is repentance, right? Because you already know this. Put it back to the, you know, your marriage, like go back to your marriage. How many times have they come and said they're sorry, but turn around and do the same thing? Wives, how much does it mean to you when your husband says, I'm really sorry, but then goes out the next day and does the exact same thing again? How much does it mean to you? I hope you'll say, none. I hope you'll look at your husband and be like, none. It means squat. Because it really doesn't mean anything, does it? Just because you ask for forgiveness doesn't change anything, right? When you truly ask for forgiveness... Right? Ted brought this up in, in our small group on Monday. Like, when you ask for forgiveness, there's this idea that like, you're really sorry. And when you're really sorry, you know what you'll do? Something different. You'll repent. That's the whole idea of repentance. And that's what he's trying to say for it. So if you look at your relationship right now and you're saying, you know what? I am sorry. It's not where it needs to be. And you're really sorry. You know what you're going to do? You're going to repent and do something about it. You're going to switch the way that it was to the way that it needs to be. Does that make sense? So he says, if you want to fix it, don't just keep saying, I'm sorry. Change something. Don't just keep coming back to the same thing and doing nothing about it. He says you need to repent and change those things in your life. So worship team is going to come back up. Let me give you a challenge. Okay, so I'm going to read the rest of it. And I want to give you a challenge to what we're hopefully going to land on of what he was trying to say to the church of Ephesus and what he's trying to communicate to each one of us. So let me end by reading this. Here's what he says in the beginning. So remember what we said. Here's some good deeds. Here's some things that you're not doing so right. Um, you need to think about this. And here's what I have against you. Your first love, right? Like you've forsaken your first love. And I'm actually going to give you some pointers, right? Like here's some pointers Take an inventory of your life. Take an inventory of your church. Take an inventory of what's going on. Then after you take an inventory, it's good to say I'm sorry, but make sure sorry is followed with repentance. Okay? That, that's a good word, isn't it? For all of us. Come on, please. Like, it's a good word, isn't it? Like, for all of us. Like, we need to do this. Take some inventory. Figure it out. Go down these roads. Then, this is what he says, and I think this is the most important thing that you could end with, because he says... If you don't what? If you don't, oh, it wasn't up there, sorry. <laughs> okay, try again. If you don't, <laughs> repent. 
If you walk out of here and change nothing, this is who, he's now talking to you. Okay? If you recognize there's something wrong inside of the relationship, and you recognize that there's something wrong with your personal relationship, he's speaking to you right now when he says this. If you do not repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here's what he says. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And I think it's kind of interesting that he ends on that because he's essentially making this mandate that would say, you know what? You should probably actually look at this whole relationship thing and see where you're at and see whether or not he's the one that you're devoted to and you should come back to your first love because there is this reality that there are going to be people who thought they had a relationship who are not going to be victorious in the end. Right? I mean, that's what it says. I mean, it says to those who are victorious, which means some of them inside the church of Ephesus are not going to be victorious. You know why? Let's just be honest. You know why? Because they looked at their relationship and didn't care. And I know what you're saying. You're like, no, that's not the way it is. I'm just telling you, tons of people have given their life to Jesus Christ to save themselves from hell but could care less about a relationship. It's not true salvation. Giving our life to Jesus Christ was about a relationship and the benefit of a relationship is spending eternity with him and I have to pay for what we deserve. That's what it is, right? It's not the opposite. But too many times inside of the church, we've just said, give your life to Jesus. Save yourself from hell. And so you did that and then somebody challenges you on, how's your relationship? Well, it's not very good, but you know, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know what he's saying? You're not okay. You're not okay. And that's, and that's okay, right? Because you can do something about it. Isn't that the great thing? You're still alive today. You're still breathing today. You still get a chance today. You can still repent today. You can still change today. You can still allow Jesus to be victorious inside of you. You get a chance. Nothing is more important. Whether you're here on our main campus or whether you're watching online, nothing is more important than your relationship today, period. And if it's not the way it needs to be, don't walk out of here thinking, oh, I got time to get it right. You don't. Do something about it and allow him to do what only he can do. Will you stand so I can pray for you? Heavenly Father, we love you. And we're so thankful that we get to read letters like this to the church because it just brings an awareness sometimes to what we put on the back burner. And it brings an awareness sometimes to some flaws and some things that that we really need to work on as a church and as individuals. And so, Lord, I just pray that today we will take an evaluation and we'll look at our lives, Lord. And we won't just keep saying things, but we're going to repent and do something about them. Lord, I pray that there is inside of this room and online and the people that are listening or watching that there's a revival of relationship today. Lord, that as we're singing this last song, that you're going to show up in people's hearts in ways that are completely unexpected because they've opened their heart up to you today. And that you're going to revitalize a relationship that's been stagnant for a really long time. Lord, we're going to see through relationship revival in the lives of people. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.
that'd be a great way for us to end, right? Like, I don't know, we just got to go. I don't know what it is he's calling uh, each one of us to, but in relationship, he'll let you know. Feeding the hungry, taking care of the sick, standing beside the broken. There's a call in each one of our lives. We just got to make a decision. Will you go? And I'll pray for you this week as we continue to pray through this series that will ushering in the presence of the Spirit, ushering in the presence of God into the broken places in our lives. I'm challenging you. Keep praying for those things. Keep asking God to show up in ways uh, that you've never seen Him show up before. So uh, we just thank you for being here with us this week. Thanks for joining us online, and we'll see you guys next week.